Well, this morning we are going to be in Romans chapter 7, but before we do that, I want you to do something with your Bible. I want you to take your Bible and go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we're not restarting the Exodus series like we did last semester. I just want you to go back to Exodus chapter 20. This is a visual illustration today. How many of you are visual learners? You like visual, you don't like lectures, you like pictures and movement and whatnot? Okay, some of you, uh, some of you are in denial, that's okay. Okay, and here's what I want you to do. You're, you're either going to do with your left hand or your right hand, obviously. Um, I want you to put one finger in Exodus chapter 20. And then I want you to flip all the way to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. Let's do this. It's visual learners, calisthenics. This is your second sermon of the day. You've got to get active here. Turn to Joshua, chapter 1. And as you look at Joshua, chapter 1, you are going to see... Man, I've got to turn there. I need both thumbs for this. Here we go. If you look at Joshua, chapter 1, you're going to see the very end on the next page of Joshua 34. Do you see that? I want you with your other finger to put it on that page, and I want you to hold that up. That's what I want you to do. Kind of hold it like this, so you've got pretty much from Exodus 20 all the way to uh, Deuteronomy 34. Do you guys have that? Do you see, can I see it? If you, if you were to grip it like that, Exodus 20 to Deuteronomy 34, show me. Show me what you got. I want to see your skills. Look at you guys. You're such good learners. I like that right there. That's good. Some are bigger than others. Some are thinner than others. That's good. Okay, now why do I have you do that? As you're holding that still, I've still got mine right here in my hand. As you're holding that, that is a portion of scripture that is often referred to as the law. That is the law. Now there's, it's sometimes used a different thing. Sometimes Genesis 1 all the way through Exodus 34 is known as the law, the Torah. And the reason why I've kind of broken it out of this is these are all the passages in the Bible that have the law portion. This would include the Ten Commandments, uh, the instructions for uh, Israel's morality, how God wants them to live, instructions for the tabernacle, how the priests are supposed to dress, the sacrificial system in Leviticus, all of it's kind of doubled down on in Deuteronomy. And the question that we have is, what does that have to do with your life? Why do we bring this up? Why talk about the law? What is the significance of it? And what does it have to do with our life today? And there's a lot of ways we could talk about it. But the reason why I bring that up now is because Romans chapter 7 is talking about the law and you. Let's go to Romans 7 now. That's where we're going to be today. And Paul is going to be referring to the law. And he's referring to it because earlier in chapter 5, he made an interesting contrast. He said that in chapter 5, by the law we had died, but now we're under grace. Right? He made this distinction between law and grace. And in chapter 6, verse 14, he actually says, you are no longer under the law, but under grace. So let's just talk practical. What does that mean? Like, does that mean as a Christian, like, I can read Genesis and the first part of Exodus, and then in my Bible reading plan, I could just skip to Joshua. Like, the law doesn't matter anymore. Does it mean I don't have to obey anything in the law? What does that mean? Then it says that we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. What is Paul talking about? Well, what he's not talking about is now that you're a Christian under grace, you can live however you want. That's what we saw in chapter 6. But what is he talking about? And for us to understand what Paul's going to be talking about in Romans 7... It's actually going to be kind of easy because you have all seen lots and lots of Disney movies. It's true, you have. And it's not because Paul is going to sing uh, or have a repetitive plot line in chapter 7, but it is because you're familiar with Disney's basically only story right now, which is the story of self-discovery, the story of being who you are. Every Disney movie right now has something to do with you don't realize how special you are. And if you just realize how special you are and be who that special person you are is supposed to be, then you will be, I don't know, special, I guess. So, you know, you just realize that these ice powers you have are for good and creativity. 
You just realize that you're supposed to take those ten rings from your father and use them for power like you are. Now, you just realize that, oh, I wasn't just a jet pilot in the last life. I just happened to randomly be the strongest superwoman in the universe, right? These, these thin plot. And you see Wonder Woman? How does it happen that every hero is the next strongest one ever invented? Anyway, um, right? It's such a thin plot line over and over again. Well, Moana, if you just want to go back to the sea, it's who you are, right? And it's again and again, you just need to realize who you are and be who you are. And in Romans chapter 7, that's what Paul is talking about again. He's, when he's going to talk about the law... It's going to have less to do with, you know, can I still wear clothing with different fabric? He's going to talk about it in relation to who you used to be and who you are. That's what we're going to look at today, Romans chapter 7. And I think this passage is incredibly encouraging for you figuring out who you are as a Christian right now. It's helping you figuring out as you finish up school this last semester, as you go into winter break, it's going to help you think rightly about yourself as a Christian. It's going to help you think rightly about yourself if you're not a Christian. You know, we do live in a day and age where everything is about I get to identify myself however I want. And thankfully, God's word tells us who we are. So we don't have to guess. Uh, We don't have to worry like, is my identity going to be rejected by other people? God just tells us who we actually are in Christ and who we are before him as a created person. And so this morning, what I want to do is I'm going to look at three different things. I want you to notice something about our identity. And instead of reading all of chapter seven now, chapter seven is a complicated chapter. I want us to walk through it together thinking about these these points. So three things I want you to notice in this passage, all having to do with your identity. And again, your identity, if you are a believer, your identity, if you're not a believer, this passage is about helping you figure out who you are. Let's look first at this, Romans chapter 7. The first thing I want you to notice is I want you to notice the divorced. I want you to notice, number one, if you're taking notes, the divorced. And they're not just divorced, they're divorced by death. Let's read Romans 7, 1. Paul says, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. What's Paul doing here? Well, Paul is going to set up an illustration. So if you want to write down a note, verses 1 through 3 is an illustration. He's setting us up to think about something. He's using the illustration of marriage and the covenant that happens with marriage. Marriage is supposed to be a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, where richer or poor, sickness or health, they are devoted to one another. And what does Paul say? He says, for a woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is set free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Right, this is basically marriage vows. You're married until when? Forever? No, until death do us part. And so is a man or a woman allowed to marry someone else? Well, yes, if the spouse has died. That's Paul saying. So he's saying, you know this, right? He's not, this is an argument. He's just saying, this is an illustration. You understand this, right? You're married to someone until they die, and then you're free from that person. Are we all aware with how death puts an end to marriage? That makes sense to everyone. Good, because it's setting up Paul's illustration. Here's what he says then, verse 4. He says, likewise, in the same way, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. We've been talking about since Romans 5 that the believer is united to Christ. Not united to Adam, but united to the second Adam, Christ. And when your old self died, you were released from your, let's say, previous marriage. And what was that previous marriage that Paul says? He says that your previous marriage was the law. You were married. Look at it again, verse 4. You have also died to the law, to the body of Christ, so that, ready, you're dead with that marriage. There's another one you belong to now. You may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. This is a very interesting passage. You died to the law, so you'd be married to Christ. Now, we have to pause here because sometimes as Christians, 
we just say things and we don't think about what they mean. So let's think about that. You've grown up in church. The law, it's a good thing. We're actually going to see here that Paul will say that the law is good. It's God's commandments. You die to the law so you'd be married to Christ. Does that make sense to anybody right off the bat? It didn't make sense to me, and I read it five or six times as we were like, what in the world does this mean? Right? What does Paul mean by we die to the law? Okay, something about dying to the law and something then about being united to Christ. So we need to think about that, and in order to understand this passage, or understand this death and this sort of then end of a marriage we used to all be in, if you're a believer, he, let's look at the context clues here. What does he say? He says, you, you've died to the law through the body of Christ, so you might belong to another, to him, Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay, so something about dying to the law and being united to Jesus now allows us to obey. Verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Okay, now we have a comparison. Marriage one, you were married to the law. You were under the law and you bore fruit, verse 5, to death. But now you've died to the law. You're married to Christ and you bear fruit for God. So the law, in the law, I would sin, but in Christ, I now obey. Okay, I'm starting to understand this more. Let's think about this. This is still a little bit confusing. What does Paul mean by this? Let's look again, verse 6. But now we are released. That's a similar word to use being released from the marriage in the illustration you give. But now, verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way. Okay, again, old way, new way, old marriage, new marriage. Why serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code? Okay, what is he saying here? Paul is going to be talking about from here to the middle of Romans 8, he's going to be talking about this new life that a believer has in the spirit. Now, you had this old life that was married to the law. By the way, is, is, any, is anyone still slightly confused what that means yet? I was at this point, right? You're still, we're still not quite sure what that means, that we were under the law. But we're released to it, not only to obey, but we might now walk in the Spirit. So if you could bear with me for a moment. No, we're going we're gonna to know for a second. I don't quite know what Paul means yet by we died to the law. But I do mean that there's something that's different. That now that in Christ I can obey... Because why, again, verse 6, I can obey in the new way of the Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, believers uh, did have the Spirit of God work in them. But there's a difference between New Testament believers and Old Testament believers. In the Old Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit would come on people for a time, for a task, and only specific people. But the blessing of being on this side of the cross in the new covenant is that God not only saves us, but dwells in us through the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. That not, not just like his presence, but a third person of the Trinity, the Spirit dwells in you and shapes you and impacts you and affects your life. Look at Romans 8, verse 9. It should just be one page over, unless you have like a really small Bible, then more than that. But Romans 8, verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And verse 11, If the Spirit, or it could be translated for believers, since the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Okay, the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us. Listen to John 14. This is, this is uh, the words of Christ. I should have it up on the screen. John 14, 17. It says, Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now this is not just a New Testament invention. 
I want to. I have one more cross-reference for us today. If you want to take your Bible, you can go to Jeremiah chapter 31. If you want to just listen and write down these references, that's totally fine. But Jeremiah chapter 31, this is verses 31 to 33. So Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. God says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh, that I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God's promise back in the Old Testament, there's going to be something different in the future. His promise is that I've given them my law outside of them. And how many of you were here when we went through Exodus? Right? Should be most of you that aren't freshmen. I don't think any of the freshmen were here yet. Uh, but when we were going through Exodus, uh, freshmen, you're here at the end. I don't, I don't want to ding you for that. Uh, but when we were going through Exodus, right, they got the law. They received the law. Here's the instruction. Here's the commandments of God, right? There it is over there. But here in Jeremiah, God says, no, no, they already have my law over there. I'm going to put it inside of them. I'm going to write my law upon their hearts. I'm going to make it so that they can obey from the heart. In fact, Paul referenced that verse last week, right? Not Paul the Apostle, Paul our guest speaker. Uh, Romans six seventeen. he said, you've become obedient from the heart. Well, how does God put his law in our hearts? The answer is Ezekiel 36, which I'm already there. Let me read it for you. Ezekiel 36, 22 to 27. So your note taker is equal 36, 22 to 27. Here's what God says. Again, it sounds very, very similar, but it, listen to the difference. He says, therefore, say the house of Israel, thus says Yahweh God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. Right? He goes, I'm going to do something amazing for the sake of my name. He writes, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so God's promise is that the very spirit that inspired the scripture is the spirit that he's going to put in us so that we would obey the scripture. And so here's this, this miracle, right? God saves us outside of us, and he saves us by dwelling within us, helping us to obey him. Such that now, if you were to look back at Romans chapter 7, what do we notice? We died to the law. We had the law, which because of it, we bore fruit for death. And because of it, we, uh, what does it say, verse 6? We were in the old way of the written code, the letter, just externalism. But now you've been married to Christ and you've been given the Holy Spirit so that you can obey. So we're still not quite sure what he means by die to the law, but this we do know. There was an old way that we lived that only walked in death, that only knew the word externally. And there's a new way where we actually can obey because God's spirit is in us. We're going to dive much deeper into the Holy Spirit when we get to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is this glorious chapter about how the Spirit helps us obey, and the Spirit gives us assurance, and the Spirit groans with us and helps us to cry out for the glorification that we all want. But if you're a believer, this is who you are. You are, no, you are someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit, and why were you filled with the Holy Spirit? Why do you have this new life? Even though we're not quite clear what this old thing meant yet, the new life that you have, why? Verse 4, look at this. It says, you have this life so that you belong to another to whom has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Christians have the Holy Spirit, not just so they can answer theological questions about the Holy Spirit, so that they would bear the fruit of the Spirit. That's who you are as a believer. I'm going to say something that should sound so obvious, yet needs to be said in our day and age. Christians obey the commands of God. They walk in obedience. 
They bear fruit for God. We live in a really strange day where morality of any kind is frowned upon. And for some reason, our modern culture has said to to, to preach holiness and to preach obedience is not to be authentic. Authenticity is the big thing of our world today. Are you authentic? Are you being real? Are you not putting on a facade, but you're being the real you? You know what Paul would want you to do, according to Romans 7, especially with Romans 8? is to be the real you. Who is the real you? The spirit-filled you who puts the death, the deeds of the flesh, who obeys from the heart, who presents their members of instruments of righteousness. Like, I'm not a dummy. I went to a youth group as a new Christian. I think I've told you guys this before. I got saved in eighth grade from a, from a Christmas and Easter-only Christian family. And, and I definitely know that in a group this size... There are those striving for Christ. There are those who want nothing to do with Christ. And there are those who are saying, if I strive for obedience, there will be people in this very room who think, that is dumb. Why are you being like that? Why are you all of a sudden being so religious? Forget people at my school saying it. People at this room will wonder, why don't you just tone it down a bit and be a bit more authentic? Were you married to Jesus so that you could act like you were still married to your previous spouse? Right? Even though, again, I've been saying, we're going to learn what that means to be under the law. How strange would it be? I always say that for a single person, for a married person to act like they were single. And how strange it would be for us who's now been, who's now covenanted with another to act as if that relationship didn't exist. Holiness is a mark of the Christian. God saved us so that we'd obey. We are not saved by our obedience. Let me make this clear. If you're newer with us, we are not saying us Christians have earned the love of God and you need to dig down deep and earn the love of God again. God loved us while we were enemies, it says in Romans 5. While we were weak, Christ died for us. We are unlovely and still unlovely, but because we've been saved, we walk in holiness. It's who you are, Christian. You're going to have a lot of downtime here in a couple of weeks. You're going to go from the, uh, the fury of finals week to having two weeks of nothing on your schedule. I don't know what you're going to fill your schedule with, but holiness is who you are. That's what we do is we bear fruit for God. Let's move to the second thing I want to say. So we have this, this uh, the divorced by death, the old self has died. Let's, let's notice second we can find in Romans chapter 7. I want you to see the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. So in my illustration, I've said the law was kind of like our old marriage. Because of it, we bore fruit for death. And now there's holiness. And here's what Paul suddenly does. He thinks about a question you might ask. You might ask, well, I know Jesus is good. Are you saying then that the law was bad? Are you saying that the law was... Let's put it in Paul's words, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Right? Throughout, Paul has been saying you're no longer bound to sin, you're bound to Christ. And now he's saying you're not bound to the law, you're bound to Christ. And so it'd be natural for you to go, wait, 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 wait. So, the law, so you're saying that the law is bad. It's sinful. That the law is, is the source of wickedness. And Paul argues, by no means... By no means. And what Paul's going to do here, he's going to to show us that the law is not sinful. In fact, spoiler alert, let's look at verse 12. He says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He's saying the law is a good thing. But let me give you Paul's point ahead of time. We could dive in. Paul is going to say that the law became the source where sin reigned in your life. That sin that used to exist in the non-Christian, the sin that, as we've already said, dominates the unbeliever. The unbeliever doesn't choose the sin because they reign over sin. It's sin that reigns over them. And the way that sin reigned was through the law. Let's look, verse 7 again. How did, how did sin reign through the law? It says, yet if, I had, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, 
you shall not covet. So what did sin do first to the law? That, that the law helped us understand not only holiness, but help us understand sin. Helped us understand these terms like lying and adultery and dishonoring and all of the things that would disobey God. The law pointed us the path to righteousness, and yet sin in us helped us to see, oh, that's also what it would look like to disobey. And so the law became this informant of how to sin because of the sin within us. Let's look further at the next verse. It says, but sin, now notice this, I I noticed the law in verse 7, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me, All kinds of covetousness. So I see that the law says, do not covet. Do not envy. And sin saw that and said, let's do some envying. And the law says, do not murder. And said, oh, we could could get in on some of that. And don't lie and go, yeah, that, that that sounds good to me. What does it say there in verse 8 again? It says, but sin seizing an opportunity. Now let's remember Paul here is talking about his old self. He's talking about non-Christians here. This is normal for non-Christian. That sin seizes an opportunity. The word there for seize an opportunity is a fome. In Greek, it's actually a military term. It has the idea of setting up a base of operations. How many of you have ever gone paintballing? Or some of the dudes, or, or girls too, paintball. <laughs> I saw a bunch of girls raise their hand first, none of the dudes. Or, or airsoft, or even just laser tag. You're just a simple, or Nerf Knight. No, no, no. And you know that, you know, when you're playing for reels and it's one shot and you're done, what's most important is position. Uh, what, what's most important is can we get in a strategic position where we can pin down the enemy, that if they try to move, we're going to get them, and they can't get us, right? Well, that word there for take the opportunity has the idea of taking like the strategical high ground. It's saying, let's take the best position. So sin sets up a base right there on the law. It says right here is where we're going to do our work. And so as, as people, as sin within us, hears about the commandments of God, says, yeah, let's do that. That sounds really good. We, we sin because we love to sin. And the corrupt nature, our old selves that hated God, would see the commandments of God and say, yes, I'd like to disobey that. And what does that bring? It brings about death. Verse 9. Verse 9 says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. Now this is speaking about how sinful unsaved people are. How sinful all of us were who are now saved before Christ rescued us, not before we cleaned ourselves, before he saved us. And it says that the thing that offered life brought about death. Let me show you the promise of life up on the screen. Leviticus 18.5 in Psalm 19.7. This is about the law, right? You shall therefore keep my statutes, my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. In Psalm 19.7.8, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving, giving life to the soul. So the, the law is supposed to help us live, to flourish, not just to obey, but to have life. And because of our corrupt nature, because of sin that was in us, which didn't just pop out, but we loved sin, the law became, the commandments of God became a source of death. Because sin within us saw that and said, I could do that. Sin says, I know I'm not supposed to tangibly murder, but I could do a little murdering in the heart. I know I'm not supposed to commit adultery, But I could do a little bit of adultery with my mind and with my eyes and in private so that nobody sees it because I love my sin and I love disobeying. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, again, setting a base through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is good. 
The law is holy and righteous and good. And did that which is good, verse 13, within me bring death to me? By no means. It wasn't the law that caused me to sin. God's commandments didn't make me sin. It was, verse 13 again, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandments become sinful beyond measure. That God says, live this way. And in our wickedness, prior to conversion, we go, sweet, I will do the opposite. That is a great way for me to disobey you. What a great way for me to rebel against the God of the universe. And this is who the non-Christian is. The non-Christian rebels because they love rebellion. There was a Christian who lived in the 300s named Augustine. He's one of the greatest Christian thinkers ever. And he wrote a book called The Confessions, which is part theology book, but through his own personal testimony. And Augustine is talking about his life prior to conversion. And the example that he gives, he goes, let me tell you what my life was like prior to being saved. And you could see if this is true for you, if you're like Augustine. It says, prior to being saved, the sin he points to is when he and some of his friends, when they were 16, stole pears from a pear tree. You might think, well, that's not that big of a deal. But Augustine, he argues, here's, here's why. He says, I stole things, talking about the pears, which I already had in plenty and better quality. Right? I, I just didn't steal the pears because I was hungry. I, my dad has pears, better pears than this. He goes, nor had I any desire to enjoy the things I stole. I didn't steal them because I was just like, those look good. He, he later says, in fact, I tossed them to the hogs. Why did he steal them? But I stole them. Because what did he enjoy? He says, I had no desire to enjoy the things I stole. I only wanted to enjoy the stealing of them and the sin. Why did I steal them? Because I enjoyed the sin of stealing them. He says, our only pleasure in doing it was that it was forbidden. Later, the malice of the act was base and I Loved it. That is to say, I loved my undoing. I loved the evil in me. Not the thing. I didn't care at all about the pears for which I did the evil, but I simply loved the evil. Friends, this is the testimony of every Christian that we didn't go from morally neutral people to upgraded people We went from those who loved sin to those who were forgiven of sin and now loved God. But this is also the way that unsaved people respond to the commands of God. Our world is not filled with people who know the Bible and don't know the Bible. It's not divided between those who go to church and stay home and watch football on Sunday. It's divided between people who love God and love their sin. And so you have people here who are unbelievers who are like really, really bad, whatever that would mean, unbelievers. Who, who try to get as much sexual pleasure and personal pride as they can. And you have other unbelievers who are like a little more religiosity in their unbelief. And they try to paint it, but it's still really about them. And the difference is they sin because they love it. They, they sin because they can't get enough about it. They, they don't care about anything else. They just love their sin. They serve it, not because it dominates them, not because it's the practical choice. They sin because they love it and they disobey God because they don't love God. That's the sinfulness of sin inside of us. That even good things, it taints because it just wants to rebel any way that it can. And so here's the commands of God and they say, sweet, a manual for rebellion. Let me find a way to do that. 
Oh, friends, that's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need, this is all of us in bondage beforehand. That's why we need the Spirit to come and free us and give us new life, to, to change us from those who are spiritually dead to have spiritual life. That's what God does in transforming people who crave and desire and scheme about sin on their bed and turning them into those who think about and love righteousness. That's who we've become in the Spirit. That's who you are as a believer. That's who you aren't as an unbeliever who is dead in their sin. Man, I know there's someone here this morning who says, man, I just sin all the time and I know I shouldn't, but why do I keep doing it? And I'm thankful you're here. And I think Paul in his kindness wants you to know it's because you crave your sin and you need someone from outside of you to change your heart that loves sin. That's the sinfulness of sin, corrupting all things. But for the believer, there's hope Spirit changing us from the inside out. Let's look at this third part. Number three, here's what I want you to see this morning, the rest of the chapter. I want you to see what I'll call the agony of new life. The agony of new life. Now, we've talked a lot about, for the unbeliever, sin used to reign. Sin was master. The law, which you're dead to, now you're understanding. It's not that you don't have to obey the law. It's that the law, being a source of sin, no longer reigns over you. Being a, uh, an outpost for sin to work out of. And now you're saying it's sweet, but Josh, based on what you're saying, should I obey perfectly? You've thought that. You're looking at this theologically, and you're thinking, look, dead to sin, dead to sin, united to Christ, raised to newness of life, according to chapter 6. And you're saying, but I look at my life. I believe in Jesus. I love Christ. I want to obey. No one's making me read my Bible. Um, No one's telling me I need to walk in holiness. So why do I still sin? And if that is you this morning, I I want to give comfort. I don't want to give license. But I want to help you see that that is not a unique experience. That you're not the only one that's frustrated and flummoxed by your sin. That there's new life, but part of the old life still remains. This is verses 14 to 25. And before I explain it, let me just read it. And tell me if you've been here before. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Before I keep reading, Paul has now changed verb tenses here. He seems like he was explaining something in the past. Now he's explaining something in the present. Verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What do we learn from this? The Christian, let's be clear, is absolutely forgiven. If you're in Christ, your sin has been wiped away, tossed into the depths of the sea, remembered no more, you've been washed white as snow. 
And the Christian is one day going to be glorified and live with Christ forever. And the Christian right now has been given a new heart that used to see the law as a way to disobey and now says, I want to obey. Paul says that in my inner heart, I want to obey. But we still deal with the corruption of the old man. We still deal, still deal with what is sometimes referred to as the flesh, our old selves. You've known this. You've gone to summer camp and have just sang so loud. Or you've sang songs like we did just a few minutes ago. We sang, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And you are just passionately loving Christ. And then you go home from camp and you go home from church. And that sin that you confessed at camp and you wept over at camp and at camp you said, I'm not doing that anymore. You do it. And it didn't even sneak up on you. You saw it coming a mile away. You thought about it and you wrestled with it and you knew you shouldn't do it. And you do it anyway. And you go, but how? How did that happen? Why does that keep happening? How come no matter how amazing I see growth in my life, I can't avoid that from happening again? Paul tells us, verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, Paul is not saying there I'm in bondage to sin permanently. When he says flesh, it's, it, the word flesh has only been used four or five times so far in the book of Romans. It always has something to do with the human body. What Paul is saying is that I am still a flesh. There's something corrupt with our physical bodies. There's something tainted because of the fall. That though one day we're going to be raised from the dead and be given new glorified bodies, now something about the sin that resides in us has to do with the physical. It's the way we're built. It's that no matter how we're raised, the whole nature versus nurture debate Nature wins. Let me illustrate. I read a headline from a month ago. It read this. Family discovers puppy they bought is a fox after pet starts attacking farm animals. A family in Lima, Peru, got outfoxed. That's a really lame joke. By an animal being sold as a dog. According to Reuters, the Soleto family bought what they thought was a puppy, which they named Run Run. I'm going to assume it's Corre Corre, from a small shop in Lima. Initially, the furry friend acted like you would expect a young dog to behave. He was playful, friendly, and energetic. But as Run Run got older, the Soleto started to question if their pet was a dog. Run Run started attacking and killing local ducks and chickens for Reuters. <laughs> And the pet's bushy tail, pointy ears, and thinner face became more prominent as Run Run aged. I love this story. I don't know. It's so funny to me. And it's funny because as you try to, no matter how you try to nurture a fox, go get it, puppy. Here's a food bowl and all that. It's still what by nature acts like a fox. Our bodies though have been changed and have the Holy Spirit in us, and one day will be permanently and forever changed, still by nature are twisted and warped. And something about this physical body, and this is not a, this is not a defense for self-harm of any kind. That would be the absolute worst way and wrong way to take this. But something about our physical bodies now is why we still deal with this sin in our life. It's an anthropological condition, if you want to be fancy with it. And he sees the sin in us. So, so it's not our old nature, but it's indwelling sin. Verse 17, right? It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
Verse 18, I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, my physical body, for I have in my heart the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. That is, our old self keeps creeping its head back up. And our old self is why we continue to still struggle with sin. Such that Paul says, I find it to be a law. This is a principle, not the law. This is just a principle, right? That when I want to do right in my heart, I want to obey. Evil lies close at hand. Look at the end of verse 25. He says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. In my mind, I want to obey, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. You have been freed from the power of sin if you're a Christian. Sin no longer dominates you, but it is still present. I remember 2008 to 2010 was a time that people refer to as the recession. It was before some of you were born. A lot of things happened. The housing bubbles burst. The stock market crashed. A lot of people lost their home. Some people got sick deals on homes out of that, which we could talk about another time. But everything kind of fell apart. And at the time, my dad still is, but at the time he was just starting as a real estate agent. And I remember going with him to take pictures of houses. The banks wanted to know, hey, how much is this house worth? So we could see what we could sell it for. Hired real estate agents to go take pictures. And I remember going with my dad into these houses and seeing just like, beautiful granite countertops and kitchens and either like really nice carpet or upgraded like wood floor and houses. These houses were decked out and they were an absolute mess because people had taken hammers and slugged the drywall as hard as they could. And people had said this nice granite countertop, pop, it broke a corner of it so the whole counter needed to be fixed. People took paint and poured it out on their nice carpet and on their walls. And they spray painted colorful language. And you go, why? Because I used to own this. And I'm going to be kicked out. So I'm going to make it as miserable as possible before I leave. That's a little bit like what it's like having the old man still reside. His days, numbered. He's gone soon. But in the meantime, he is very much trying to make things hard. And you also not want to remove responsibility. Sometimes listen to him. Let him think he has more rights and prerogatives than he actually has. Find ways to feed him before he dies. That's the struggle we have. So here's some questions as we wrap up this point. How do I know if my sin is a verse 7 to 13 sin or a verse 14 to 25 sin? How do I know if my sin is domination by the law or remnant of the old man that's been freed from the law? Let me give you, I think, what the answer is. Desire. Do you want to obey? Paul says, in my heart, I want to obey. Christian, in your sin, do you you see a desire for obedience? Let me give you one other clue. And I, I think in my years of doing high school ministry... The difference between believers struggling and unbelievers struggling who are going to walk away eventually has everything to do with verse 24. If you've not listened to anything I've said today, you need to listen to this verse. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am. The Christian sees the sin that still exists in their life. And they hate it. And they say, wretched man that I am. How could I do this? How could I do that again? 
Non-Christian does not give a rip about their sin. They don't care at all. Some of you are like this in small group. We know it and we pray for you because you laugh about it. Whenever you're brought up about it, you mock it or you shrug it off. You don't care at all. Nothing's wretched about you. You're still awesome in your own mind, even in your sin. But the Christian knows that they are still wretched and they need grace. And they, they, they just see the struggle that doesn't make sense. That's the heart of a believer in this battle. That's how you know that you're in a new man battle and not an old man battle. Because an old man's posting and bragging and giggling about their sins with all their boyish little friends still. But the real believer, the young man and young woman that wants to love Christ, feels it. They feel the weight of their sin. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? If that is you, that you are a believer this morning, let me give you encouragement. Who will deliver me? Christ. Christ will deliver you. That he will one day give you a new body that will be transformed into the likeness of his glorified body. A body where you no longer struggle with sin. That those thoughts or those desires, gone forever. Let me tell you what else is encouraging. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The struggle you feel with that sin, that sin that you're wrestling over, is sin that has been paid for at Calvary, never to be placed on your record again. And here's one other piece of encouragement. You can obey. You can beat it now. You've you've been forgiven in the past. You'll be glorified in the future. But what's the good news in between? The good news in between is Romans chapter 8. That God gives you his spirit. That helps you put to death the deeds of the flesh. That gives you the assurance in the fight against sin. Yes, you really do belong to God. And that praise, better that you even pray, but praise on your behalf that one day God will do what he promised, that he will change your body and glorify it to perfection. That's the hope for us as believers. We'll get into that in Romans chapter 8. But now we can rejoice knowing that our sin is paid for. Sin will one day be vanquished. And in between, the Spirit helps us put to death the deeds of the flesh. Christian, that's who you are. Let's be who we are. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you just the clarity, Lord, the wisdom, the encouragement. How, how helpful a text like this is. Not for, not for license, not where you just pat us on the back and tell us everything's okay, but you give us clarity about how we can know we're found in you. You give us hope for the future, hope for this life now. Any sin that's in our life now, Lord, we could put to death, not on our own strength, but by the spirit that you have made to dwell within us. Lord, I pray for these students that they would put to death the deeds of the flesh, that they would know the joy of belonging to you. I I just pray even in this room that those that are in sin, Lord, that they would have a believer's type of battle with sin and not an unbeliever's type of enjoyment of sin. Lord, thank you that in Christ there is no condemnation and that all our sins have been paid for. We praise you, we thank you, in Christ's name we pray, amen.